O God, you have made of one blood all the peoples of the earth and sent your blessed Son to preach peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. Grant that people everywhere may seek after you and find you. Bring the nations into your fold. Pour out your Spirit upon all flesh and hasten the coming of your kingdom through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. That is a prayer for the mission of the church. It's found on page 257 in the prayer book. And it seemed an appropriate prayer to begin today because the mission of the church is precisely what we are here to discuss today. As we begin this section of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15, verses 36 and following, which have to do with the second of Paul's missionary journeys. Uh, as you know, Paul went on a series of these missionary journeys, depending upon who count, who's counting, three or four of them, and they ultimately transformed the ancient world. And not only the ancient world, but the ripple effect is still felt by us today. So we're going to begin today at Acts chapter 15, verses 36 and following. We're going to read through chapter 16, verse 15. So if you have your Bibles, you want to open them up to this section of the book of Acts. A very exciting section, I might add, of the book of Acts. This section contains the story that of all the stories I used to read to my children when they were little, this was the one story from the New Testament that they loved the most, uh, a story that is found in this section, and that is Paul and Silas uh, in Philippi. So we'll get to that today as well. But a very exciting section, a very important section in terms of Acts not only being a history, a record of past events, but also a blueprint for how we can and should do ministry today. So Acts chapter 15, beginning at verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. They all knew that his father was a Greek. And they went on their way through the cities. They delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. And so the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately... We sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Again, a very significant section of the book of Acts, the beginning of this second missionary journey, a much larger missionary endeavor than the one that Paul had previously gone on. 
Um, if you recall, when you looked at the maps the last time, when we looked at the first missionary journey, you'll recall that they had started off here in this city of Antioch. There were two Antiochs in the ancient world. There was Antioch here in Pisidia, Antioch here in Syria. This is the real Antioch of significance, Acts chapter 13. It was from here uh, that the church sent out the missionaries, the first missionaries, Paul and Barnabas. And we're told that they set off from Antioch, they went down the coast to Seleucia, and they took a boat across to the Isle of Cyprus, which is where Barnabas was from. And they evangelized the Isle of Cyprus. Then when they had finished there, they went up here to Pamphylia, at which point, we heard it in this reading just a moment ago, John Mark, who had accompanied them on this journey, who was a relative of Barnabas, departed and went back. And so the other two, Paul and Barnabas, proceeded on by themselves from Pamphylia, pressed on up into this area to the north to Pisidian Antioch. And you'll recall what happened. They preached the gospel there. There was division within the community. Some received the gospel. Some rejected the gospel. And we're told that the Jews and the high-ranking women of the region forced them out. And so they fled from Pisidian Antioch. They went over to Iconium, to Lystra, and ultimately to Derbe. And in all this places, they preached the gospel, churches were established, and when we say churches, we're not talking about huge congregations, sometimes just perhaps two or three believers. But the point is that communities were established in each of those places, but persecution also resulted from the preaching of the gospel in all those places. In the case of Lystra, you'll recall that Paul was actually stoned, attacked by the crowds, dragged outside the city, and left for dead. They finished here in Derby. Now, once they finished that missionary journey, having gone to the places that they set out to visit on this first missionary journey, it would have been a whole lot easier for them to do what? Well, to take the overland route right through what is now modern-day Turkey, through Tarsus, which is incidentally where Paul grew up. Paul grew up in Tarsus. So this would have been the easy route to go and then travel on down and report to the church in Antioch. Much shorter distance. But we're told they didn't do that. In spite of the persecutions that they had suffered in all of those other places, they finished the first missionary journey by going back through the towns where they had just been, strengthening the believers. That's how we know that there were churches established in spite of the persecution and the opposition that they faced, that there were believers. And so they went right back through Derby, Lystria, Iconium, presumably Pisidian Antioch, before they sailed back to Antioch and Syria. And that was the end of the first missionary journey. And what happened immediately following that first missionary journey? They were summoned to Jerusalem, to the Jerusalem Council, which is what we've been looking at for the past couple of weeks. And so once that had finished, the, the Jerusalem Council, what happened next? Well, that's where we pick up the narrative today. Uh, what we find is that after some days there, in Jerusalem or in Pisidian Antioch, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So it is Paul's intention to go back to these cities and continue to build up the churches. But we're told that something happened here. And what happened there was there was a dispute between Barnabas and Paul. When I first read through this, one of the things that strikes me is the fact that Paul and Barnabas did not regard their work as having been accomplished. In spite of all that they had done and in spite of all that they had been through, they did not regard their work as Christian missionaries as having been done. In other words, they didn't think that it was appropriate for them to take a vacation. In fact, and I've done a thorough search of this, I haven't found the word vacation anywhere in the Bible. <laughs> it's not to be found anywhere in the Old Testament. And the closest we get to the idea of a vacation in the New Testament is when Jesus takes his disciples from time to time and they go off to a quiet place and spend some time in prayer and meditation. We probably wouldn't call that a vacation. We'd probably call that a retreat. 
But one of the things that you will notice is that there was nowhere any mention whatsoever of vacations, retirement, or terms of office in the Bible. Now, I don't mean to imply that vacations are necessarily a bad thing. I think vacations are sometimes a good thing, sometimes a necessary thing, and I'm adamant about taking mine. But I want you to understand, vacations are luxuries that are enjoyed by affluent societies. Throughout the bulk of the world's history, people didn't take vacations for the simple reason that they, they did not have the luxury of taking vacations. They didn't have the opportunity to take vacations. Most people didn't have the financial wherewithal to take vacations. You were just trying to stay alive. Now, I'm well aware of the fact that in the 18th century, Charlestonians went abroad, and they went on the grand tour. But I want you to understand that they were the elite. They were the few. The vast majority of people did not do that sort of thing. And at any rate, you need to understand that while it's appropriate sometimes to get a rest, to get refreshed, to get your batteries recharged, to take a vacation, there is never a vacation from the Christian vocation. There is never a break from the Christian life. It's not as though you're a Christian, you know, 50 weeks out of the year, but for two weeks I can hang up my Christianity and go out and live like a heathen. There is no retirement and there's no vacation from being a follower after Jesus Christ, from bearing witness to him wherever we may be. And this is something that I think is very important for us because as Americans, we have a tendency to compartmentalize our lives. And what I want you to understand that as Christians, we have to view the whole of life through the Christian lens. And so I think it's, it's very inspirational that in spite of everything that Paul and Barnabas had been through, and they had been through a lot, my friends, they had been persecuted in all of those places, they didn't take the easy route home, they went back through all of those cities where they had established churches, no doubt facing opposition because the same people who had accepted the gospel were there, but so were the people that had opposed the gospel, they were still there. And to make matters worse, when they get back to Antioch, lo and behold... Because of their hard work, we said no good deed goes unpunished. A controversy arose in the life of the church as a result of them preaching that the Gentiles were saved by grace and not by works, not by circumcision. And the result was that they were brought down to Jerusalem where Paul tells us in his epistle to the Galatians that he faced what? Great pressure. So his whole life, this whole first missionary journey was pressure. Persecution, difficulty. It's a wonder that he even went on a second missionary journey. But he did. I want you to understand there's no break from the Christian vocation. A couple of other things that I want you to notice as we start to take a look at this second missionary journey. A missionary journey, by the way, that, as I said, would change the world. We are sitting here today, and I've said this before, as a result of these missionary journeys. But I want you to notice four things particularly about this second missionary journey. First thing I want you to notice is we're going to see a new alignment of missionaries. We're going to see the work expand, not only geographically, but also in terms of the number of missionaries. Second thing I want you to notice is that you're going to see a new worker. Somebody is going to join Paul's team here. Actually, a couple of people are going to join Paul's team here. So we're going to see some people that are going to become quite famous in the New Testament and have a lasting impact on the church in those early days. Third thing we're going to see is a new vision. The first vision was a vision that was given to that church in Antioch, set apart from me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work to which I have called them. And they laid their hands on them and sent them off. We're going to see a new vision this time but it's a vision to an altogether new world. And the fourth thing you're going to see is a new type of church that is established in the ancient world. So those are four things that we're going to see that are somewhat different from what we saw on the first missionary journey. So just keep them in your mind as we walk through this. So let's take a look in turn at each of these four new things. First of all, we are going to see in the second missionary journey a new 
alignment. Verse 36, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, some people have suggested that this second missionary journey was Paul's idea. And because it was Paul's idea, and not necessarily God's idea, that's why they began to run into difficulty almost from the get-go. Now, why they say it was Paul's idea? Well, because the text says here, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit. In the first missionary journey, it wasn't Paul or Barnabas who came up with the idea that they go out and evangelize the world. Whose idea was it? It was God, the Holy Spirit. We're told that while the church in Antioch was praying and fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke to the congregation and said, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas to the work to which I have called them. And so some people have suggested, you see, the first missionary journey was God's idea, and the second missionary journey was Paul's idea, and because it was Paul's idea, automatically you begin to see difficulty. I don't think there's an ounce of truth or credibility in that claim. The whole reason why Paul was not called on this second missionary journey to go in the same way that he was called in the first missionary journey was because he was called. He'd already been called. And as I said, it's a lifelong vocation. Paul wasn't called to just do this for a time period and then somebody else would take over the helm. Somebody else would take over the responsibility of evangelizing the world. No, Paul was being called by Christ to be a missionary until the day he died, however long that was going to be. So Paul didn't feel the need to be called again because he'd already been called once. And it was a lifelong calling. But that's not to say that there weren't difficulties. Because we're told that no sooner had they started off than Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. Uh, John Mark was a relative of Barnabas. Incidentally, he is the author of the Gospel of Mark. John Mark is the author of, of the Gospel of Mark. But Paul, look at this in verse 38, thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Now, we're never told exactly why John Mark deserted them. But the indicator here seems to suggest that the work was becoming difficult. He departed from them almost immediately after they had finished evangelizing the Isle of Cyprus. Now, what had happened on Cyprus? Well, we know they had faced opposition. In fact, there had been a false prophet there, you'll recall, that tried to talk in a, in a discrediting way about Paul to the proconsul. And Paul had countered him by calling down a curse upon him. Remember, he was temporarily blinded. Now, John Mark probably thought this was a great adventure. And when he began to face opposition like that, perhaps he became a little timid. We don't know. But whatever the case was, we're told that he left Paul and Barnabas and he went back home. Now they're starting off again. Barnabas says, I think this is a great idea. Paul, let's go back and strengthen the churches. I, I want to do that with you. And let's take John Mark with us. And Paul says, oh, no. And Barnabas says, well, why not? He's my nephew. We want, we want to take him. No way. He quit on us. And this is no work for quitters. And you hear Barnabas say, well, now, Paul, just, you know, Take it easy here. Everybody deserves a second chance. Didn't you get a second chance? And we're told that the, the debate went back and forth. And, and by the way, our English translation, and I've said this before, has a tendency to downplay this sort of thing. We saw that with the, with the, the disputes that arose at the church council between Paul and, and Peter. You get the sanitized version in the book of Acts, but if you read Galatians, you, you find that Paul said, I opposed Peter to his face. We went toe-to-toe -to -toe and nose-to-nose, -nose and I did not back down. These people were not Casper Milktoast. They were not timid individuals. They were courageous, and they were men of conviction. 
And Barnabas wanted to take John Mark, give him a second chance, and Paul was, no, this is no job for quitters. And the text says a sharp disagreement arose among them. This was no little petty difference of opinion. These men had a sharp disagreement to such a degree, we're told, that in verse 39, they separated from each other. They separated from each other. The book of Proverbs says when, that iron sharpens iron. Have you ever seen iron sharpen iron? Sometimes when iron sharpens iron, there are sparks. And that's exactly what happened with these two great courageous missionaries. These are the kinds of guys that you want to bring in to your pulpit on Mission Sunday, and you want to hold them up as examples to everybody, and yet here they are having such a sharp disagreement that they actually part company. Now, here's the question. Who is right? Was Barnabas right? Was Barnabas right that John Mark deserved a second chance? Or was Paul right? As Jesus said, once you put your hand to the plow, you cannot look back. The one who looks back is not worthy of the calling. Who is right in this? Well, the Bible doesn't say. It doesn't tell us who was right or who was wrong in the midst of this. What we do know is that Paul eventually was reconciled to John Mark because later on he calls for John Mark and invites him to come to Rome with him. So there does appear to be some sort of reconciliation. But at this point in the story, a sharp disagreement arose to such a degree that these two great men who had done so much together on that first missionary journey, as they're setting off on the second missionary journey, have a difference of opinion and they part company. Now that can be very discouraging to us. We say, well, you see, that's why the world thinks that the Christian faith is, is, is filled with such hypocrisy, because look at these people. They can't even get along with each other, let alone get along with others. You hear people say that from time to time? Of course you do. But what I want you to notice is that in spite of their disagreements, petty or not, the work of the Lord continued. That's why I love Romans 8.28, my favorite passage from the Bible. We all have our favorite passages, but that's my favorite. And for we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are the called according to his purposes. Whoever was right, whoever was wrong, and perhaps it was a mixture of both in both of these great men. At the very least, what we do know is that none of that was allowed to in any way discredit or stop the work of the Lord. In fact, actually what it did was it spread it because we're told that Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. And what did Paul do? He chose another leader of that church in Antioch, Silas, and they departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And they went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So now we have what? We have two groups working. Instead of one missionary team going off in one direction, we have two missionary teams going off in two different directions, doing twice the work. Now we read this that Paul went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, it's very easy to pass by those words. Verse 41, just seems like it's just sort of added information. Okay, so Barnabas took Mark, and they went to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and departed, and they went through Cilicia and Syria, strengthening the churches, and then eventually they came to the places where they had been on that first missionary journey, Derby and Lystra. But here's the question. If on that first missionary journey, and I'm going to have to get that off the screen in a minute, if on that first missionary journey they traveled from Antioch down to Cyprus, up to Pamphylia, to Pisidian Antioch, to Iconium, to Lystra, and to Derbe, and then turned around and came back, and we're told that on this occasion they set out from Antioch, went north, and strengthening the churches in Syria and Cilicia, where did these churches come from? Paul didn't go through that area on the first missionary journey. So what churches was he strengthening? 
Well, the scripture doesn't exactly tell us, but it means one of two things. It means that either Paul had established churches there before the first missionary journey, so he was still out evangelizing even though he had not received the official call yet. We're told that after his conversion on the road to Damascus, what happened? He went down to Jerusalem, and then he went back and he spent some time, almost 12 years studying the scriptures before he was called by Barnabas to come to the church in Antioch. So it could be that Paul had already been preaching the gospel. He did that right after his conversion. So it could be that he had established these churches already. Or it does mean that Paul and Barnabas, or Paul and Silas, and Barnabas and John Mark were not the only missionary teams out there. There may have been other mission teams that had gone out. We just have the record of Paul and his companions. But there may have been others that had established these churches here in this area that as Paul went through them, he was able to encourage them and strengthen them. What that reminds us, my friends, is that mission work is a high priority in the life of the church. Somebody has said that the church exists by mission as a fire exists by burning. And as a friend of mine likes to say, if you do not have a missionary heart, you only have half the blessing of the gospel. So mission work is at the heart of the Christian faith. And a church that is not active in mission work is a church that is not fulfilling the Lord's call to be the church. What were Jesus' last words to his disciples? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Now some people will say, well, I understand, but charity begins at home. You ever hear people say that sort of thing? Well, it's true. But it better not stop there. It needs to go out beyond that. And all the indicators suggest to us that there was a great deal of missionary activity that was taking place in the early church. Paul, of course, was the most significant, but he was by no means, it appears, the only one. So they went on. We're told Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. So let's just go back for a minute. So we see a new alignment. We see Paul taking Silas and going with him. And after they travel through and they get to Lystra, we come to this second point that I wanted you to notice, a new worker. This young man, Timothy. And they took Timothy with them. Now, who was Timothy? Well, we know a little bit here. We're told that Paul, when he came to Derbe and Lystra, a disciple was there named Timothy, who was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. I think it's interesting that Timothy was converted in Lystra. Now, why is that significant? Because what had happened to Paul in Lystra on that first missionary journey? That's where he'd been attacked. That's where he'd been dragged outside the city, having been stoned into an unconscious state and left for dead. And yet when they went back, they found a believer there, a young man by the name of Timothy, whose mother was a believer, whose father was a Greek. So this is what I mean when even when it does not appear is when we're sharing the gospel that anything has happened, you have to remember that the word of the Lord, the prophet Isaiah says, never comes back void. And that was the case here because Timothy is going to play a prominent role in the life of the church. In fact, when Paul comes to the end of his life and ministry and the church is teetering on the verge of destruction and he's got to pass the torch, the, 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 the leadership, the mantle of leadership onto somebody else, who do you think he passes it on to? He passes it on to this young man. So when Paul first went through there, perhaps he didn't think that he had been very successful whatsoever, but he had absolute confidence in the power of the gospel to change lives. We're told that there was this man, this young man by the name of Timothy who had been converted. We know a number of other things about Timothy. If you turn to Philippians for just a minute, get a real picture of this young man, Timothy. It's our first introduction to him, but he's a very important person. So keep your finger there in the book of Acts and skip over to Philippians for just a moment. Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. We'll get to the church in Philippi 
shortly. But later, years later, when Paul was writing this epistle to the Philippians, he talks about Timothy, this young man who was there in Lystra, who they decided to take with them on the journey. And here's what he says about Timothy. Look, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy, Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that surely I myself will come also. Paul tells us a number of things about Timothy, this young man. First of all, he was unique. And I say he's unique, what I mean by that is he described as like-minded with Paul. Now, like-minded does not mean that he was a carbon copy of the Apostle Paul. In fact, if you read through Paul's two letters to Timothy in the New Testament, what you quickly discover is that Timothy couldn't have been more different from Paul if he tried. First of all, he was young, probably just in his 20s when Paul took him along. And that's because Paul says on more than one occasion, he says, don't let anyone look down upon you because you're young. He also encourages Timothy to flee youthful passions. So we know that Timothy was young. There's indicators that he was probably of a weak constitution. Um, Paul encourages him to take a little wine for his upset stomach, whether that was a nervous stomach or something else, we don't know. Paul makes references to his frequent ailments. And we're also told that Paul was, rather, Timothy was timid. Timid, shy, reticent. We would probably call him an introvert today. So you've got a young, sickly, timid man. Now, that couldn't be more different from Paul if you tried. Paul was not a young man at this point. He was middle-aged, moving along. Not in the late afternoon of his glory, not yet, but he was moving up there. Paul was many things. Shy and timid was not one of them. Paul was a straight shooter. How did he deal with the Judaizers? He said, I wish they would go and emasculate themselves. Well, that's not exactly what you would call shy and timid or reticent. And from what we can tell, Paul, everything that he went through, and he catalogs all these things in his epistles to the Corinthians, all the things that he suffered, how he was beaten with rods, how he was imprisoned, how he was shipwrecked, how he was in danger on the highways and on the pathways, and you name it. And yet somehow he never seemed worse for wear. Paul was not of a weak constitution. He appears to have the constitution of an ox. And yet he describes Timothy as like-minded. So what does he mean? If he's not a carbon copy, what does he mean? He means that he had the same priorities. He had a burning desire, a longing to seek and to save the lost. See, that's real leadership. Leadership is not surrounding yourself with people that are just like you. It's surrounding yourself with people who share your vision, but they have different gifts. That's what it means to be the body of Christ. Not everybody can be a hand, not everybody can be a foot, but each person within the body of Christ, so long as we have the same priorities, we have unity. We may have diversity of gifts, we have unity of spirit, and that's how the church grows, and it is strong. And that's the way it was with Paul and Timothy. Paul chose a man who was different from himself, but a man who was like-minded. That's one of the blessings, let me tell you, of being in a church where you can afford to have more than one clergyman. I am pleased as punch with the group of clergymen that I have right now. I cannot tell you. Because I do so much teaching like this, I, I feel freed up to share the pulpit on Sunday and allow the other guys to exercise their preaching ministry. Anybody wants to hear the rector preach every week, 
you've got plenty of opportunities. I'm here every rector's forum, and I am here every Thursday, glad to teach and preach for over an hour. But it is a great comfort to know that no matter who's in the pulpit on Sunday, whether it's Brian or Ryan or Mark or Andrew, that their style is different, their approach is different, they share that common vision to proclaim the gospel. And we're all different, but we're like-minded. I may preach a message that reaches some people. Mark, on the other hand, may preach a message that reaches somebody else. Don't ever, don't ever look in the newspaper and say, oh, so-and-so's preaching today. <laughs> now, you're laughing because I know it happens. <laughs> we'll just stop taking their names out if we have to do that. The gospel's the gospel at St. Philip's, whoever's in the pulpit on that particular Sunday. So Timothy was unique. He was like-minded. We're told that Timothy was concerned for others. Look at what Paul says in Philippians 2.20. He says, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. I think that what that tells us is that Timothy was, in terms of his giftedness, probably pastor more than preacher. He was probably a pastor. He knew how to deal with conflict in the life of the church. He knew how to build up congregations. He knew how to pastor people and to guide and direct the congregations. I think that's why Paul appointed him as the leader of the church in Ephesus, what we would call a bishop today. He was concerned for others. We're also told that he was not only concerned for others, but he also looked out for the interest of who? Of Jesus Christ. He's concerned for your interests, he said, but not yours only. He said, for all others seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but you know Timothy. So Timothy was first and foremost concerned with what? The glory of Christ. The glory of Christ. And Paul said, there's no one quite like him. And all the indicators suggest to us that Timothy was a team player. There's an old poem that says, it takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. Timothy evidently was comfortable being number two. You know, when you live in a culture where you're taught that the only thing that matters is number one, that's the only thing that matters, being on top of the heap, being number one. It's good to be the king. It takes a great deal of grace to say, I'm willing to be number two. I'm willing to support. I'm willing to be Aaron to your Moses. And that's what Timothy did. And because these men were capable, and I think it's only by the grace of God, it's not to say that they didn't have egos. Oh, they had egos. Paul and Barnabas would not have parted company if they didn't have egos. But what it does tell us is that they were willing to make their egos subservient to the mission. And that's this young man. I want you to understand if God has work for us to do, he's always going to bring the right people. God always pays for what he orders. And even though these two men, Paul and Barnabas, parted company, God did not leave either of them bereft of the help that they needed to carry on the work. Now, if you go back to the book of Acts, there is something, though, that happens with Timothy that might strike a little bit of consternation in your mind, especially in light of what we looked at last week, namely the Jerusalem Council, which had been a great council that debated the issue of what? Circumcision. Wasn't that the big issue? Don't these Gentiles have to be circumcised in order to be saved? And they had this big debate, and Paul said, I confronted Peter, I went to him, and I, I would not give an inch. And in the end, they decided that what? Circumcision was not required for the Gentiles in order to be saved. And yet, lo and behold, we're told 
that when he came and he took Timothy with him, he did what? He had Timothy circumcised. Why? That sounds like Paul is backpedaling. It sounds as though he suddenly changed his tune. Why did he have Timothy circumcised? Well, what does the text say? Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. On one occasion, Paul said, I will be all things to all men in order that I might save some. In order that I might save some. He knew that the fact that Timothy was not circumcised was going to be controversial for the Jews. They were not going to hear the message. They were simply going to shut down. We're not listening to that guy. No, absolutely not. And so to remove an impediment to the gospel, Paul was what? Willing to have him circumcised. Not because the circumcision was going to save anybody, but simply because it was going to be a stumbling block. In the same way that being circumcised could be a stumbling block, in this case, not being circumcised could be a stumbling block to the proclamation of the gospel. So what Paul was saying is, I am going to make the gospel the top priority and everything else is secondary to that. Secondary to that. You know, when I, um, I went to preach at a church on one occasion, and it was a high church parish, and they asked me to fill in, and uh, I came from a low church evangelical background, and uh, you know, in high church backgrounds, they wear different vestments. And uh, I went in, and they asked me if I, you know, would be willing to wear, you know, the whole nine yards, the chasuble and the, the maniple and all those things, if, if you even know what those things are. And I said, absolutely. I said, I'll be glad to wear whatever you want me to wear. I remember something that John Rogers, who was a former dean of Trinity, said. He said, when he was asked that question, he told the congregation, I'll preach in star-spangled underwear if that's what you require in order for me to preach the gospel. There's a wonderful story about Bishop Manton Eastburn, who was a wonderful bishop in the 19th century, low church evangelical. He didn't even like to have candles or flowers on the altar. And he didn't call it the altar, it was the holy table. And he was taking a trip and he went to London. And he went to, he ended up being in a hotel close to a Church of England parish. He wanted to go to the service, and so he walked down there. When he walked in, he discovered it was a high Anglo-Catholic parish. I mean, you couldn't even see the front of the church for all the incense in that place. And they were ringing the bells and smoking the place and bowing and scraping. And they found out when it was all over that, well, before it actually the service began, that Bishop Eastburn was there, and he had a reputation for being this low churchman. And so they put on the dog. I mean, they put on the dog. When he walked out the door, you could see the incense rising from his frock coat. And one of the clergymen decided he would play with Bishop Eastburn. And he came up to him and he said, Well, Your Grace, I suppose that was a little much for you. And Bishop Eastburn took the man's hand in his own and he looked at him and he said, Oh, no. He said, anything that is meant to glorify my Lord Jesus Christ is never too much. See, the most important thing for Manton Eastburn was what? The glory of Christ. And that was the most important thing for Paul. And Timothy, having received the gospel from Paul, was already a believer before he went on this second missionary journey. We're told that he was a believer. His mother was a believer. That's why Paul was taking him. He didn't need to be circumcised in order to be saved, but if he was going to be effective where they were going, he was willing to have this done to him, even though it would have been a painful operation at his age. Everything, everything, pride and everything else was secondary to the gospel. Is that true in our lives? You know, we get hung up in the church on all kinds of things. And we divide and fight and battle over all kinds of things. But what really matters is what? The glory of Jesus Christ. The glory of Jesus Christ. 
So we see a new worker, a new alignment. A new worker is joined, Paul and Silas, as they make their way. Now we're going to see a new vision, a new vision. Look at what we find here. We're told that they decided to go through the area of Cilicia and Syria, strengthening the churches, and they wanted to travel on, but we're told the Spirit of Jesus prevented them. Look at verses 6 and following. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. Here's what we see happening here. Paul and Barnabas start off in this missionary journey in Antioch. They travel through this region. They come to Derby, where they had been on the first missionary journey, to Lystra. And it had been Paul's intention, is what Luke is telling us, to continue on the great Roman road that went across the continent over to Ephesus, which was one of the major cities of the ancient world there on the coast. But we're told he was prevented from doing so. Now, what does that mean, he was prevented? Well, the text doesn't explain it. It doesn't tell us that there was just something within his spirit that testified that he should not go in that direction. We're not told if he faced intense opposition that prevented him from going in that direction. But whatever it was, a door was closed, and he could not go to the west, which is where he wanted to go. And so what did he try to do? We're told that he passed into this area up to Mysia, and it had been his intention to pull back to the east and to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus prevented him from doing that. So he really couldn't go to the north, he couldn't go to the south, or really to the west, so what could he do? The only thing that he could do is basically press on between these two forbidden areas until he reached the coast at Troas. And it was there at Troas that he has a vision. Verse 9, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia. Cross the Hellespont, come over to Macedonia, and help us. I want you to notice that God was guiding Paul on this second missionary journey. But the guidance was coming in the form of closed doors. You know, sometimes we're asking for guidance from the Lord, aren't we? Are you aware of the fact that God sometimes guides us not by opening doors, but by closing doors? That can be pretty frustrating. Most of us don't like closed doors. Most of us want open doors. And here's the problem with closed doors. You don't realize what God was doing until after the fact. That's why you have to walk by faith. And it can be very frustrating. You see an open door, you see an opportunity, you go for it, and all of a sudden the door slams shut. Okay. So you go in another direction, and you see an open door, an opportunity, and you want to go through, and the door slams shut. And if enough doors slam shut enough times, what happens? The frustration turns into anger toward God. Lord, why are you doing this to me? And if these closed doors teach us anything, they teach us that this is sometimes how God guides us until He directs us toward the door that He wants us to walk through. I'll share a little bit of this from my own life. When I was um, at uh, St. David's in Chiral as the rector, I sensed after about three and a half years there that I had done what I was called there to do. But I was 26 years old. I didn't know where I was going to end up. Nothing was open. And my wife was sensing the same thing, that we had done what we had come to do there with our little family and so forth, and it was time for somebody else to take on. And, and furthermore, I really felt like I had missed out on a Paul and Timothy-type relationship. I was a young man, and I had spent only about a year and a half under the tutelage of another priest before the bishop said, you're going to Chiral. And I said, where's Chiral? Um, <laughs> I soon discovered where Chiral was. Um, but 
I really never felt like I had the opportunity to just sit under a senior priest and, and learn. And so I, I just felt that that was something that was missing in my ministry. And so Kristen and I were talking about it one night, and I said, we need to pray about this. I said, I just feel like I'm still young enough that I have time to go and learn from somebody else. But I don't know where to go. Bishop Samma doesn't seem like he's eager for me to go anywhere. So I said, we're just going to have to start praying about it. So we did. And about two months later, telephone rang. It was this guy named Frank Limehouse. And he was the rector at St. Helena's in Beaufort. And he said, Jeff, he said, I heard you speak one time at the diocesan convention. He said, I don't even know why I'm calling you. You're the rector of your own parish. He said, but I'm looking for an assistant, and I'm wondering if you might not be the man. And a door had opened. And I went through that door. And I spent six and a half years under Frank Limehouse learning from him. You know, some people would ask, WWJD, what would Jesus do? I was asking WWFD, what would Frank do? That's what I wanted to figure out. How would he do these things? And I learned a great deal from him. But after about six and a half years, I began to sense I'm being called now to be a rector again. Having learned, having, having received this wisdom from this older, more seasoned priest, I decided that it was time for me. And I was at that point starting to get offers. People were starting to call me. And there was a large church in Richmond, Virginia. Now, many of you know, I'm a Civil War buff. <laughs> Richmond's the capital of the Confederacy. I mean, hey. So I was really interested in this big church uh, in Virginia that was calling me. And so I, um, I decided to be a part of that process. And they asked me for letters of recommendation. So I called my old bishop. Alden Hathaway, who was a former bishop of Pittsburgh, and I said, Bishop, would you write me a letter of recommendation? And he hemmed and he hawed and he said, well, um, uh, well, um, sure. <laughs> I thought, oh boy, that's going to be a real enthusiastic letter. <laughs> but he said he'd do it. So he wrote me a letter of recommendation. And the church turned me down. Now, I don't know if it was because of the letter of recommendation necessarily, but they turned me down. And I was devastated. I was just devastated. But then I got a telephone call from a church in Alabama, the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Their dean, Paul Zoll, had left, and they were looking for a new dean. And I, I hadn't applied. I, I didn't know how they got my name. They said, your name came to us from Bishop Alden Hathaway. It turns out he didn't want me to go to Virginia because he had a plan. You know, God loved me, but Alden Hathaway had a wonderful plan for my life. And, and his plan for my life was that I was going to Birmingham, Alabama. So I thought, well, hey, dean of the cathedral. So I went through the process, and they asked for letters of recommendation. So I went to, I didn't go to Hathaway again. I went, I went back to Limehouse, and I said, Frank, would you like to write a letter of recommendation? And he said, I will. And so um, I was moving on through the, the process and, and so forth. And one day, Frank Limehouse came into my office and he said, the Church of the Advent in Birmingham just called me. And I thought, oh gosh, well, what did they say? He said, they want to know if I want to be a part of their search process. <laughs> now, Frank had written a letter of recommendation for me, and now they're asking him to be a part of the search process. What about me? <laughs> And he said, well, they, they said, you know, they liked you and everything, but you were, you were still pretty young. I'm like, young? For heaven's sakes, he said, but don't worry. I set them straight. And he said, I think you're back in the running. So sure enough, I get a call from them two days later. We want you to come down to Alabama. Okay. So Frank Limehouse, this is a long story, but you'll see how God works. So Frank Limehouse calls Bishop Salmon and says, I think Jeff's going to end up going to Birmingham, Alabama. I need a new senior associate. The bishop said, uh, well, uh, what are you doing for lunch tomorrow? And Frank said, well, nothing, Bishop. And you know this, if you know Ed Salmon, this is how he operated. Um, he said, well, I'm coming down there, and I'm going to take you and Jeffrey to lunch, and we'll talk about this. So we went down to lunch. We're sitting there, and the bishop looks at both of us, and he says, Jeffrey, I've just got to tell you, in no uncertain terms, you should not 
in any way consider going to Birmingham, Alabama. You should not go. And then he turned to Frank and he said, but you should. This is the gospel truth. I'm telling you the truth as it is. Now, you know, I'm, I'm at this point, I'm frustrated. I'm real frustrated. And the bishop said, now, let me go. I, I need to use the restroom. You two talk amongst yourselves. And so, so it's like pulling the key on a grenade, rolling it into the room to see what would happen. So Frank and I are sitting there. We're talking about this. But I knew when the bishop spoke that he was right. And so I said, Frank, what do you think? He said, Frank said, I, he said, I thought I was going to you know, hang up the cleats here at St. Helena's. He said, but Jeff, you know, I think maybe the bishop's right. And I said, I think he's right too, Frank. I, I, I said, I don't know what the Lord has in mind for me, but I think he has in mind for you to go to Birmingham, Alabama. Frank said, well, I guess we're just going to have to follow that. He said, oh, man, Jeff, he said, you're not going to believe this. I said, what? He said, I just wanted to make sure that you were a shoe-in at Birmingham, Alabama, so he said, yesterday, I wrote another letter of recommendation for you. And he said, it just went out in the mail this morning. And he said, if you call and back out of the process, two days from now, they're going to get a letter that's saying, no, you're the right man. He said, they're going to think we're crazy. And I said, well, Frank, there's not anything we can do about it. I want you to know. Two days later, that letter came back marked insufficient postage. <laughs> and Frank Limehouse announced to the vestry, and I was on vacation. See, I do take my vacations. I was on vacation, and Frank was going to announce to the vestry that he was leaving. And um, he called me. He said, Jeff, I'm sitting here with the vestry, and they want to ask you a question. And I thought they were going to ask, do you want to, would you please hold down the fort while we start a process? And the night that he announced that he was resigning, they unanimously called me as the rector of St. Helena's. Now all those doors slamming shut left and right, and I became more and more frustrated, but it was all God's way in his sovereignty of directing me in the way that I should go. Because it was his intention that I did move from being the senior associate to being a rector. But it was not God's will that I move from where I was. But there were a lot of closed doors along the way before the right door opened, and it became so clear that that was the one I was supposed to take. And all of that, I might add, was a preparation for coming to St. Philip's, in my mind. Because I got this telephone call one day from Mark Phillips chairman of the search committee at St. Phillips. And he said, uh, Jeff Miller, this is uh, Mark Phillips. I said, hey, Mark. And he said, uh, I, I want you to know something. Uh, we sent you a month ago a letter, a packet, about a search process we were having here. And we wanted you to be a part of that search process. And we never got a response from you. And I said, well, Mark, I, I never got a packet. He said, I know. We sent it to the wrong address. And it came back. And it's been sitting here. And he said, so I'm going to resend it to you. Would you be a part of this process? The Lord is sovereign even over the United States Postal Service. I want you to see that. I want you to realize this. It can be frustrating. But if God is closing a door in your life right now, he's still guiding you. Over and over again, he kept saying to Paul, no to Ephesus, no to Bithynia, yes to Macedonia. God leads through open doors. But what I found in my own life, and I think the scripture bears this out, is God leads just as often through closed doors. So don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. Whatever those doors may be, God is still guiding you. And it would be the means by which the gospel mission would be opened into Europe. Into Europe. Now, I raised the question earlier, why we should do mission work. Why should we be doing mission work as Christians? There are a number of reasons. And I'll just go through these briefly. 
We should be doing mission work, first of all, because Jesus commanded us to do it. We should be doing mission work because Jesus commanded us to do it. You know, we talk a great deal about Jesus as our Lord and our Savior, but most of the time the emphasis is upon the saving part, isn't it? We all want Jesus to save us because I've never met anybody who wants to go to hell even out of a sense of curiosity. <laughs> it's the lordship part that we struggle with, isn't it? Because the Lord commands. How many of you men or women out there have had experience in the military? Raise your hands if you've been in the military or something. If a superior officer gives you an order, are you in a position to debate that? What's that? Barely. Barely. <laughs> Jesus is our commanding officer. He's our Lord. He has our best interests in mind. But he is the Lord. And as Paul wrote to the Philippians, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Some will bow willingly, some will bow unwillingly, but all will bow. Why? Because he is the Lord. So why do we do mission work? Why did Paul do mission work? Even in the spite of closed doors, why did he press on? He pressed on because the Lord commanded him to do it. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. Second reason, Paul says, is because the love of Christ constrains us. My friends, if you love Jesus Christ, you have to love Jesus Christ's people. And if you don't love the people for whom Christ died, then it's a pretty good indicator you probably don't love him. Because to love him is to love the things that he loves. Third reason why we do mission work is because the world is in need. And this is probably more apparent now than in any other point in history, since we live in such a global world. The opportunities are manifold, and the ease of traveling is better than it's ever been. The world is in need. And God will supply what we need. One little thing before we leave. Look at Acts chapter 16, verses 10 and 11. And when Paul had seen the vision of the man from Macedonia, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi. I want you to notice something. It's a shift. It's a very subtle shift, but it's there. Did you notice in verse 10, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on. We. Look at verse 11. And so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage. Who's the we? It's not Timothy. Timothy didn't write the book of Acts. It's Luke. What does that tell us? Somewhere along the journey, Luke joined them. And this merry band is growing. If God calls us to some great work, whether that's at St. Philip's or St. Michael's or wherever you are, I want you to know he will always provide the bodies that are necessary to get the job done. There was a split. Barnabas and John Mark went down to Cyprus. Paul took with him Silas. Before you know it, they're in Lystra. They've got Timothy. And as they press on from there, they pick up somebody else. They pick up Luke. And they'll pick up others along the journey as well. You're going to see that in your own churches. You're going to see that at St. Philip's. God is going to bring new people in. Don't view those new people as a threat. You know, sometimes we do. We, get, we feel threatened by new people. I want you to notice that if God has called them here, they are here because they are here to be a part of the work. The great work that God has in store for this congregation so that like Paul and Barnabas, John, Mark, and Timothy, we can change the world. So let's subordinate everything else to the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks and praise for the beginning of this second missionary journey. 
There's so much more for us to learn, but we give you thanks for what we already have learned. In our own lives, Lord, it's hard for us. We want the open doors. We want the easy way. But you promise not to lead us into the paths of unrighteousness, but in the paths of righteousness. And so, Lord, as we make our way in this world, pilgrims, we pray that you would close those doors that need to be closed and only open those that need to be opened. And when the right door opens, Lord, give us the courage, the strength, and the desire to step through. And along the way, bring with us the companions that we need to be about the work of sharing the gospel with a world in need. This we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you.